This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to another edition of the Minefields. Well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this program. We'll see how we go with this one. This is one of those shows I really enjoy because it's almost not a topic, but it might coalesce into a really, really fun topic for exactly that reason. Sometimes I think, Scott, the more... No, I was going to say the more abstract... I probably mean to say the, the less concrete, even though that is exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't feel yeah. like the same thing in this instance, if you know what I mean. The less concrete or perhaps immediate a topic is, the more fun it can be. And yeah. I think today's going to be very fun. So this, this topic, and I, I really do feel like you're doing me a serious favor here because uh, I've, I pitched this one. Uh, it's probably fair to say that I've somewhat urged it. I didn't say I was going to resign from the show or anything or hold a lifelong blood feud if we didn't go with it. Um, But I really love this topic, and it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And to my mind, this particular show fits in a sequence with a number of other shows that we've done this year. The show, for instance, that we did on Aesthetic Judgment with Rita Felsky just towards the beginning of the year, why it is that we like certain forms of art, certain books, certain certain, uh, aesthetic objects more than others, and others just simply don't speak to us. What happens when we don't like something and suddenly we fall in love with it? What, what Rita Felsky calls attunement. That for me is one of the highlights of the entire year. We also did that great show with Sam Spall on the ethics of emojis, which again, it seems somewhat frivolous a little bit. That was fun. It was a great great show because I also think we ended up getting into some really, really deep waters. So Mm. this I'm kind of seeing as being in a sequence with that, because we are talking about the arts or to some extent aesthetics or the way that we engage with literary objects. But we're also talking about something that seems almost so trivial, almost so banal, that it's not even worth discussing. And I suspect that as soon as I give you what the actual uh, question is, it's going to seem so blatantly obvious as to hardly be worth discussing. But as soon as you begin digging, as soon as you begin exploring it, I just think, I think it's wonderful on, on every level and fraught with dangers, which makes it perfect for this kind of show. <laughs> so here's, here's my question to you, Waleed. And, and I, I want to follow up the question with what your response was when I put it to you. So the question is, what are we doing when we quote? Now, just to be completely upfront in the interest of all clarity, I'm not talking about what a student does when they have to quote a primary or secondary source in an essay. I'm not talking about what, say, a scientific or a peer-reviewed article needs to do when it needs to meticulously attribute all of its sources. What I mean is, what are we doing when, for instance, in the course of one of these shows, I say to you, now this calls to mind what Stanley Cavell calls soul blindness, or this is kind of what Iris Murdoch was getting at when she referred to the fat, relentless ego, or when I might drop Aristotle. So quoting means <laughs> the sort of thing that you might drop in the course of, let's say, a literary essay, maybe a novel, in the course mm. of some kind of conversation over dinner or otherwise, when the point isn't to prove. I think that's the, that's the really relevant thing. 
the point isn't to prove. It's not like as soon as I say Iris Murdoch, you say QED. Um, oh, that's interesting. I think you're jumping ahead. I don't think I am. But uh, well, clearly, otherwise you'd not have done it. No, <laughs> let me just go. Let me go a little bit further, though. So it seems to me that that the point of the quotes that we're discussing isn't necessarily to prove, because the other person can respond to you. Well, who the hell cares what she thinks? Yes, they can, but that's why you don't quote someone obscure. When, or <laughs> yeah, you, you you quote someone when you're not ex- expecting that response, right? You you quote someone to avoid that response. Oh, really? See, Don't I, you think? I've, you wouldn't quote someone to me that you know holds no authority in my eyes. You you would only quote I do someone regularly. <laughs> no, you don't. Who? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. No, go maybe on. Bob go Dylan. On. Yeah, That's maybe it. Bob Dylan actually. Yeah, but uh, generally speaking, you quote someone to lean on their authority in that context, don't you? Yeah, but you see, I I think the kind of quotation we're talking about needn't have anything to do with authority. It may. It may, it may be that in a conversation about racial justice, for instance, bringing up the name of Martin Luther King and bringing out an aphorism from one of his sermons, for instance, might hold a degree of weight, only then to be greeted with the response, MLK was wrong. Here, I think Malcolm yeah. X had it all over. So, so I, But do you see what's happening when that, in that moment? Yes. Is that you're forcing your interlocutor to make that statement which is a big statement, mm. right? So in other words, what you're saying is, here I am in the course of this conversation quoting Martin Luther King Jr. If you want to take him on, be my guest, but that's who you're taking on. Mm. You're not taking me on. Mm. And so you, you're putting a bigger hill in front of them, right? That, that's surely the idea that's at play there. You wouldn't if you were at a meeting of people who were firmly in the Malcolm X camp who think that, <laughs> The whole celebrate the cultural celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. or the valorization of, of nonviolence, for instance. Yeah, is mm. is an expression of kind of a, a white supremacist narrative that's um, you know meant to yeah 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 mm. and and to keep black anger in check. For example, mm. you wouldn't quote Martin Luther King Jr. in that context, or would you? No. Yeah. See, I well, it depends on your relationship with that. Group yes, of it's people, yes, it's true. Yes, it's true. Yes, it's true. But, but if, if you, what you're trying to do is persuade them, uh, here I'm, you know, dredging up the ghosts of shows past. Um, if if what you wanted to do, <laughs> what, have we discussed persuasion recently? Have we? Yes. <laughs> really? Um, if what you if what you wanted to do was um, win them to your view as one of them, you mm-hmm. certainly wouldn't do that, right? Yeah, that's true. Which so, yeah, which so that's, incidentally, that's I mean. incidentally though, Walid. Doesn't that raise, see, this is why I love this topic. Doesn't that raise a, a, uh, an imminent moral problem with the use of quotation? Oftentimes, the bringing up of a poorly read or badly misunderstood or, uh, or gratuitously grabbed hold of quote from someone who is meant to hold water in a particular community but with whom I have no actual moral relationship uh, can almost be the equivalent of some of my, I'm not a racist, some of my best friends are Asians, for instance. Mm. So in other words, I might not have read a single word of any of Toni Morrison's novels. And yet suddenly, after she passed away two years ago, 
there are all of these quotes from Toni Morrison, usually from a number of speeches that she gave, a couple of literary reviews that she did, suddenly began circulating everywhere, being grabbed hold of by people who were wanting to make a case for take your pick. Uh, for feminism, for racial justice, whatever. And then suddenly, uh, Toni Morrison, this this world historical, this once in a generation, once every three generations novelist, becomes the purveyor of easily commodified quotations that can then be mass circulated. And that then demonstrates, I think, not just the way that quotations can be used as a form of bad faith, in other words, to conceal one's non-engagement with a particular issue, to conceal one's lack of reading of a particular person, but also it it shows the ways that the use of quotes, the transformation of rich writers into the purveyors of easily commodified quotes, it shows how real insight how genuine provocation can become a form of cant. In other words, a kind of ready-made truism, what Gustav Flaubert <laughs> called received ideas, things that just easily circulate and fund- fundamentally offend nobody. So that, I think, is where quotation isn't just a form of disingenuousness, whereas a concealment of lack of engagement, of lack of learning, of lack of reading, but it also shows, doesn't it, how the use of quotations in the course of arguments Uh, or in the course of conversations, can become a form of egotism. It becomes a badge that you wear. It becomes a fashion statement that you make. And that, I think, that demonstrates a form of corruption that really is disturbing to me. Why did you quote Flaubert there? (laughs) Ah, you even did the French pronunciation. Why Why did I quote Flaubert? Well, look, one of the wonderful things about Flaubert is that he was, along with Soren Kierkegaard, he was the great first uh, 19th century media critic. He was one of the first diagnosticians of the way that mass circulated words in the form of newspapers or magazines could go from uh, being uh, mechanisms or vehicles for enlightenment, for moral transformation, for informing the mass public, and into fashion statements, things that one digests and even memorizes in his great book on received ideas. He said that the proper use of newspaper editorials, of course, is to commit them to memory in the privacy of your drawing room, and then when you go out for drinks that night, to rehearse them and shine. Um, I think... Yes, and you, 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 this is one of your most cited statements, I reckon, in the history of the minefield. Oh. Don't you think? I'm not sure about that. Really? No. I think you return to this very often. Because, I, but but what I'm asking is not is his idea interesting. But why did you quote him? Well, in that particular point, if I said the words "received ideas," yeah, and didn't fasten quotation marks around them or didn't attribute them to Gustav Flaubert, then I suspect audience would think I was either plagiarizing or I was a poser. Really? Yeah. So this takes me back to the text message conversation that we had. Yes, it is. I, I didn't bring so, that up, please, please. Yeah, which is what you were, you were about to ask me about and then we got sidetracked. So I, I've gone and found it while you were talking. Good. Good. Uh, and you pitch it, you say, I'd like to devote a show, and then brackets you put, and I know it sounds weird, but trust me, there's something really good in it. <laughs> Close brackets. On what are we doing when we quote others in writing and speaking, and then you go on. Yeah. And my immediate response... Uh, 
Actually, you know, it's not I can, several hours well, later. I could actually cite it to you from memory. Okay, go on. It was, I love this idea because you, quote, mark. you quote relentlessly and I don't quote anybody. <laughs> yes. I said, I love this idea, exclamation mark, new text, especially because you always quote and I very rarely do. New text, brackets on the show anyway. <laughs> brackets. So are you calling me a poser? No. No. Well. I, I think you are. I th- no, no, no. I think there are some times that you have read things and you have incorporated them into your mental infrastructure and you may well have forgotten where those things come from. I don't think that's a vice. I, I have a phobia bordering on a chronic anxiety issue involved with getting an idea from somebody else, passing off that idea as if it were entirely my own, and then selling it as if I'm somehow erudite or articulate or brilliant. Um, I, but but it's, not just, it's not just self-protection for me. It's also, for me, one of the great things that quotations do is they introduce listeners or readers into a world hopefully beyond themselves. So when I say Iris Murdoch, what I really want is for someone to turn off the radio, to turn off the podcast, and to pick up the sovereignty of good. Um, If I mention Flaubert, what I really, really want is for someone to take the hint, to take the clue, and to pick up Madame Bovary. Um, For me, one of the things that quotations do is they put oneself in company. And they make that company hopefully more interesting than the person who's doing the mediating or the curating at that point. That, I guess, is my hope. The, the hope is, is that someone is going to take the clue, is going to pick up the hint, and is going to go somewhere else with that. But I think the other thing that happens, Waleed, is that if you do bring, for instance, Flaubert, Murdoch, Stanley Cavell into the course of a conversation – you can be charged with one of two things. One is none of these writers have anything to do with one another. You're just slapping things together that you just happen to have read without any sense of what the deeper connection might be, the underlying context of the words that you just cited. But then there's another possible response. The other response is, but there is something between them. But there is something that maybe people haven't seen before. There is something when you bring disparate thinkers, disparate writers into the common space. There is something when you begin comparing, say, John Rawls with Martin Luther King Jr. There is something when you begin uh, holding up, say, Ali Smith with the post-Holocaust poet Paul Ceylon. There's something that happens when you bring those things together that isn't inappropriate, but it's almost more like the appropriateness, the deeper appropriateness haven't, hasn't yet been seen, and it's waiting there for someone to pick up the hint and to discover it. So something rich comes from the synthesis. Yes. Or or the mere juxtaposition. Something rich can come from the mere juxtaposition. Okay. And uh, there's value in that. What I think is interesting, though, is is that conversation that you're describing there the one that is intended to be had on this show when you when no not on this show but when you when you set out discussing something so in other words by all all the quoting that you're talking about mm. are you actually sending your interlocutor on some other path that's a very different path from the one on mm. which you originally that's set out 
together. Yep. So now you're talking about connections between people that you've quoted rather than perhaps the substantive issue that you began interrogating. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. I'm not saying there's no value in what you've described, that sort of synthesis. I, I, I think that's probably right. Um, and it's probably good. But but I I guess what I'm saying is there are just trade-offs with all of these things. Yes, yes, yes. So one of the things that I think often happens when people become quote machines is the conversation becomes inaccessible. It's mm, true. Sometimes to their interlocutor, sometimes to an audience if it's like on a show that has an audience or in a public forum of some sort. Sometimes to themselves. I've heard yes. it happen, Waleed. I've heard it right. happen. Someone used something and they are in no control of what it is that they just brought into the conversation at that point. Right, but, but what they have is the illusion of control because <laughs> they're right. always hitched, hitched to some <laughs> other name. Uh, so I kind of feel oh, that we, we're nice in point. danger of making this particular episode in the end not mean very much because already, what have we been going, 17 minutes or something, already we've described so many different ways that you can use quotes that we're actually at the end just talking about speech, aren't we? Hmm. Like, so all of the um, all of the benefits, all of the transgressions that we might have identified here apply to non-quote speech uh, just as easily. So, for example, should we do a, should we do a crude taxonomy okay. of what we've done so far? So, there's quoting for authority. Mm-hmm. What goes along with that, or what's smuggled along with that, is hiding one's own accountability by using the person that you're quoting as a shield. Precisely. Okay. There's quoting as affectation. Yep. So look at all these people I've read or at least heard of, or look at how I pronounce Flaubert, (laughs) Uh, you know, whatever that might be. What else did we have? There's, this is one we haven't discussed, but I think is important. There's quoting, I think, as shortcut. Yes. So sometimes you quote something and you don't know the first thing about the person who said it, but it's mm. just such a great quote. Mm-hmm. Like it, it just so perfectly encapsulates the thing you're trying to get to. And what's, going, what's being transmitted there along with saying that it's a quote or by quoting that particular person, what goes along with that is thinking has been done about this and someone said it really well when the fine point of that thinking got to this particular articulation of it. And I want to, that articulation is just so beautiful that I, Mm. you know, so precise or whatever it is that I, that I want to do that. There's quoting, um, out of evangelism, right? I'm, I'm going to quote, I'm going to quote Hannah Arendt until you bloody well go away and read Arendt because I'm going to convince you that there's something there that's, that's worth your time. Mm. I don't know which of those things are particular to the act of quoting as opposed to just being different functions or different modes of speech more generally. You know, there is affectation, there is persuasion, there is evangelism, there is protection of oneself or shielding of oneself that goes on. These sorts of things, they just pepper speech unavoidably. And then so I wonder whether or not quoting does actually have a particular function that's separate to that that's worth thinking about. Terrific. Let me just say, let me just make three very brief additional points there before, and I'm really eager to get to our guest for this because I think she's going to illuminate in a way that I'm not sure either of us can. Um, One is, I really like the point that you made about quoting as a kind of shorthand. So a great deal of work has been done 
this is a great distillation of it. What I think that is doing is it's almost elevating a quote to a kind of ap- to an aphorism, to a proverb almost, something you can hold in your hand and you can turn and turn and turn and to some extent even return to. So yeah. to my mind, uh, I mean, I'm not going to quote it, but there have been a number of lines. <laughs> there have been a number of lines from a speech delivered in 1953, sorry, 1853 by Ralph Waldo Emerson that I've, I just find myself over the last two years, over the course of this pandemic, returning to again and again and again. And each time I return to it, something new is seen. The resonances begin to flare off in different directions. So I think there's something there that's really important. In other words, quoting as something that, yes, it's a shorthand, but it also creates this hesitation in thought. It lets you, it gives you something to come back to. I think the other danger, though, and I, I, I love the way that you've teased this out, it does reveal the danger in simply using quotes as a way of, uh, let's, let's put it this way, as a form of cowardice, as a refusal entirely to make one's words or one's thoughts or one's beliefs one's own. Well, one's own, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's hiding behind something in order to, yes, evade accountability in order to maybe uh, smuggle in a bit, of, a bit of surreptitious learning or authority into something that I might in the end feel pretty flimsy about. I'm, I'm sure I've said before that my mother used to tell me, if you're not sure how to pronounce a word, say it loudly. Um, yes. I quite, I quite like that. And I think in, in a, many respects, when we're not sure about our footing in particular arguments, sometimes we just throw in a name or throw in a quote, and that is almost to our condemnation. But I think the third thing that what you just said holds out the possibility of is, is quoting as a form of overt, explicit vanity. Um, I was delighted when you told me the other day that you've been watching the HBO series Succession because there's, yeah. there's this horribly uh, old money, obnoxiously wearing their learning heavily on their sleeves but never did a day of work in their lives family in the second series called The Pierces. They're the opposite in every way to the boorishly uncultured Roy's. Uh, there's this episode, I think it's episode five in season two, where these two families come together and The Pierces quote relentlessly Shakespeare, Thoreau, Emerson. One of them even brings up Jonathan Franzen at one point, at which point I sort of, I, I quietly regurgitated. Uh, but, but there's no sense of self-knowledge in what it is they're doing. It's vanity. It's placing a badge on oneself. It's wearing the latest fashion. It's a form of, of egotism paraded in the form of, look who I can quote, look what people I'm associating myself with. It's, it's quotes as ornaments, as baubles, as jewelry. Um, and I think that is, if there's any form of quotation that is the most obnoxious, that surely, surely has to be it. In other words, it's saying that I am in complete control of what it is that I'm quoting. It serves my interest, and yet it in no way addresses me. So it seems to me that one of the things you're leaving out there maybe is the use of quotes as something that then holds the speaker, him or herself, to account. So it's not something of which I'm entirely in possession or in control. And here I think the analogy, Walter Benjamin made this analogy between quotes that he used and quotes of religious texts. I mean, who in their right mind 
would use a religious text, for instance, and say, I am in complete possession of the meaning, the valences, the implications. I can use this against others, but it has no bearing upon I myself. So there, I think there's a, mm. another dimension we've not quite broached, but it seems to me almost central. So many dimensions. That's what happens on The Minefield, which is the show to which you are listening. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you can catch the podcast anytime you like, at your leisure, at your convenience, as is the style of the age, uh, on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. on earth were we going to get <laughs> to discuss? Like, I, I had no idea. But then out of the blue, like an epiphany, at an event that we both attended, I saw Bronwyn Lee. She's head of the School of Communications and Arts at University of Queensland, where she's also a professor. She's the poetry editor at the University of Queensland Press. And she joins us here in studio in Brisbane. Bronwyn, thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. Hi, Walid. Although oh, I feel a little left out out in the cold. I didn't realise that this was just you guys in a room and me just remote as a satellite to the show like this. <laughs> Although after all this, you may be thinking, what on earth have I got myself in for? So, Bronwyn, you've heard, I think, just about everything that we have to say. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to take us with this? Well, first I have to say I love this topic. I think it's uh, what first got me to fall in love with literature was that Reading books and, and hearing another another voice resounding in your head, and then the more you read and the conversations that interplay and overlapping of voices becomes that kind of um, conversation you're talking about, a bit like a dinner party where you've got you know the the ideal guests sitting around a table and you bounce their ideas up against each other, and and sometimes you can select those quotations or guests uh, to affirm your position and other times you can do it in that um, sort of French way of thesis antithesis which you were doing somewhat now and saying you know the the power of quotes versus you know the misuse of them so you can have those conversations that that come up but I think for me humans are the most we're language animals we it's it's one of our most defining traits is is our love of language for um, not just its utility of communication but the um, the aesthetics of it the music of it so sometimes these these quotes that we talk about are just beautiful to say mm. you know it's not always about argument and persuasion and rhetorical devices um, we're just as easily seduced by the beauty of of language. Can, can I just also say, sometimes, this at least is my experience in reading or trying to read poetry, there come occasions where one simply runs up against the internal barriers to one's ability to be able to say what one really means. So, mm-hmm. for instance, I was, I was struck some months ago at reading again and again accounts of the 2019-2020 bushfires, these clouds that hung over the continent. And I kept feeling... Clouds is not the right word to use there. It's mm. too benign. Mm. There's something else. There's another register that's needed to try to grasp, try to articulate something of the horror. And it just struck me that it's in the jagged, ragged, ruined lines of Paul Ceylon's poetry, for instance, that one can begin to feel something like the horror that many on the southeast of the Australian continent felt 
during those dark weeks. And so I think it's not just the beauty, the way that we can turn these things over and over in our minds or in our mouths even, but the extent to which quotes help us leap over internal barriers to us being able to say what it is that maybe we really truly do feel. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, it applies to poets, but also um, people like Winston Churchill, that where they would take the time to really ponder. I think um, Winston used to line the bathtub with a cigar. I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but really rehearse his, uh, his um, lines for Parliament the next day. It's an, an act of that takes time and I think kind of generosity to sit and stay with a topic long enough to find that other word for clouds. Hmm. And not everyone has time to do that. <laughs> so it's the work, I think, of writers, poets, prose writers, politicians, <laughs> perhaps, to sit down and find what is the way to say this that will appeal to the audience. Because I think that's the other part of this conversation is who's, who's listening um, to these quotations. And, and sometimes, you know, there are the in-groups sort of talking to each other and they can do that shorthand you were mentioning where they can just almost just drop the names and everyone's, you know, can follow what that argument was just by the order of, of the names. Um, but I think what it comes down to is that quotations, the reasons why we use it, there's such a diversity of motivations for doing it. I think absolutely that appeal to authority is is absolutely there. But there are also more sort of fun and social reasons mm. why people might do it. I, I, I remember when I was an undergraduate studying in the US and um, I had a study buddy who was um, from Ireland. So we were both uh, resident aliens uh, in California and he was studying um, computer science and I was studying literature. Uh, but he would drop these quotations on me, such as, a woman is born, not made, Simone de Beauvoir, the second sex. Mm. And I think now looking back, the intention was probably to try <laughs> to try and, um, you know, make a romantic connection with a, <laughs> with a female. But it had That's the- part of the taxonomy we left out, <laughs> Willie. <laughs> <laughs> but it had the opposite effect on me because I burned with shame that as a li- literature student and a female, I, I actually didn't know what he was talking about and I didn't, hadn't mm. read the book. And so um, I finally did get a chance to take a course in um, feminist literature, read The Second Sex, I got my pen out, I underlined all the passages that everyone else underlines. Can I, can I just press both of you then on the question of authority, though? Because I don't think the issue of quoting for authority is as straightforward as maybe we've made it out. Wally, do you want to say anything further about about authority sort of quoting in order for, for heft or trying to gauge one's quotes for the particular audience so, so that it has the maximum appeal? Well, uh, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like I need to know what you're about to argue against before I can mount the argument that I want, okay. except, except to say that I think what it does is it allows you to bypass having to make the argument, right? So if I walk into a room of committed conservatives and start quoting Edmund Burke, I don't need to, I don't need to establish the position. It's, it's the same reason that Malcolm Turnbull tried to quote Margaret Thatcher mm. on climate change, true. for example, right? So she has an authority. In that case, it's sort of a partisan political authority. And isn't that often the case when we're trying to quote for authority? The, the intended outcome there is that someone goes, oh, well, 
we have to accept that as axiomatic now. So if the, the rest of the conversation now has to proceed on the basis that that is true. I don't need to prove that to you. This, doesn't, this no longer needs to be argued. And it's a form of shortcut, I suppose, because it means that we can bypass a whole step of persuasion. I just think it's, you know, in its way as simple as that, you know. Okay. I don't this, know what that's missing. This is interesting. So let, let me put something to you, Bronwyn. Mm-hmm. In that precise example, it seems to me that Waleed gave about Malcolm Turnbull quoting Margaret Thatcher. The point isn't necessarily authority, though. It's not Margaret Thatcher, climate change, QED. It's you thought you were in control of your ideological sources. You thought that the army of authors, the army of thinkers, the, audience, the army of political figures that you had lined up next to you are all in lockstep. This is like quoting John Stuart Mill, for instance, against the presumption of free speech. The point isn't to use an authority. The point is to try to divest an audience of the assurity that they thought they had, the control they thought they had over their own sources. Now, I mean... It only works if they're an authority, though. Uh, yes, it does. But the point isn't to capitalize on their authority. The point is to create that moment of hesitation, that pause, that, hang on, really? And then at that point, you're left with the choice, who cares what Margaret Thatcher says? Who cares what John Stuart Mill says about free speech? Or it's supposed to send you back to something like first principles. So that, that I think is, it's not authority per se, unless we're talking about religious texts. It's not authority per se, but it's also something about the unsettling of the sources of authority. Well, I think, um, I mean, there is that somebody said, <laughs> everything we talk about will be a quote, but people are more willing to believe what you say if you say Benjamin Franklin said it first. Hmm. So, you know, there, that appeal exists. But as you were saying before, the, the more select, selected we are in choosing the bits, we've lost all that context. And so by going back to that original text and seeing actually the, the point was much more nuanced or in the previous paragraph or chapter, they, they actually argued the opposite or, or said the opposite. And so part of that um, excavating of thoughts is to move away from perhaps the most obvious quote and find something else that puts it in a bigger conversation. Which is what happens when religious texts are quoted. That's right. Mm. Uh, certainly in the Islamic tradition where they are memorised. Right? But I think it does open up a conversation a bit more there because there's like, here's this verse. Yes, but what do you say about this verse? And you, you get that, that sort of thing. Whereas I'm not sure I quite agree with your characterisation, Scott, in that, no, you're right, but when you say that's not capitalising on authority, I think it is capitalising on authority. It's just that what that capitalisation might be able to achieve in that moment is okay. limited in some way. But you would be perfectly happy if they said, oh, okay, fine, game over, Margaret Thatcher said it. Hmm. Hmm. You, you'd be perfectly happy with that outcome. It's, it's not that you're not seeking that outcome, it's just that you're very unlikely to get it. The, other, the flip side of this, of course, is it's not just using names, dropping quotes in order to garner the sympathy of a particular audience, using quotes that you think that they, using names that you think will, the audience will already incline themselves to. But it might also be, for instance, using ideas, lines of thought, particular remarks made by people who we would have thought would have been antipathetic to a particular audience, and then suddenly discovering or suddenly revealing that this ideological enemy of yours just said something 
to which you naturally agree. So I, I think it's, it's, much more, it's much more nuanced than that. And I think quotes can have this unsettling effect. But I think the next step of the argument then, or the next step of what we need mm. to explore, is there something wrong with having the words of another in one's mouth? Is there something wrong with not giving those words their proper due? So, for instance, if I've simply absorbed the poetry of, the novels of somebody, and they're just part of how I speak and I don't give proper attribution to them, and yet I've owned them, is it really, have I really done something wrong? And then there's also Walid's point from earlier, which is that sometimes the use of frenetic quotation can be a way of really kind of browbeating your audience. It's not an act of sympathy or authenticity at all, but really quite the opposite. Mm. Um, if you've just joined us on the radio, this is The Minefield. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens, my co-host. Our guest for this week is Professor Bronwyn Lee, who's professor and head of the School of Communication and Arts at the University of Queensland. So Bronwyn, if I, if, if I quote something, but I didn't really quote it, it's something I've read so many times that it's just part of me. Mm. Is it, have I done something wrong in not assigning? Have I, have I in fact been more gentle to my listener, maybe, in not assigning it? Alternatively, what about when I try to acknowledge everything, but then it has the effect of completely losing the person that I'm supposed to be speaking to? Yeah, and I, again, I think it comes back to the diversity of motivations of what you're trying to do. So I, I remember, um, again, going back years ago when you're discovering all the texts and, and the quotable lines and you're so excited about them. And and um, in that sort of enthusiasm of, of youth, you, you drop them too much. And I remember another friend saying to me, oh, yeah, who said that? And I would just, out of... Um, humour, I would say, oh, I heard it on Oprah. And they'll go, oh, my God. <laughs> so it was sort of a reverse appeal to, to authority um, there, which I suppose is one way of answering Waleed's question from earlier of why would you quote someone who doesn't have authority <laughs> with, you know, in what <laughs> you're, you're talking about. Um, but, yeah, it, it can go wrong and there are so many misattributions of quotes and even in going through my notes in, in thinking about this topic for today, I found that quotes I've been using for years were actually not, not true. So, for instance, there's the one um, by Winston Churchill where he says, um, if, you're not a liberal, if you're not a liberal by age 25, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by 35, um, you have no brain. Mm. Um, now, I don't go around saying that, <laughs> but I've been aware of it. And I, I was reading, it's, it's not true. There's no record that he ever said that. And he was probably a conservative at birth <laughs> from, from all we know. And there were just so I think so there's many. a lot of Churchill like that. Yeah. yeah. Once you become quotable, every quote's attributed to you, <laughs> yeah. whether or not you've actually said it. Yeah. And the quotables, uh, people go in and out of fashion. So it was Mark Twain for mm. a while or, you know, as I said before, Benjamin Franklin... If, if there's anything epigrammatic, really short quips, everyone thinks it's Oscar Wilde <laughs> yep. when it's not. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Dorothy Parker uh, has a, a poem where she mentions that, you know, if she's ever in a literate crowd and goes to say something um, epigrammatic, uh, she never 
How does it go? So, no, she never um, takes credit because everyone thinks Oscar said it. Right. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite nice. Um, so, so sometimes um, just through, and I think the mechanism for this, for so many misattributions is often to do with somebody has, may have said something um, and then it gets paraphrased in an essay um, and then somebody puts those magic lines around it, the inverted commas, and then it becomes a quote when in fact it was probably a series of hmm. uh, of paraphrases and so forth. Bronwyn, I, I think this is a more important question than it might first appear. Mm-hmm. When and why is quoting so pretentious? Nice. Yeah, that is a good question. I, I think um, it's, again, about audience, who you're talking to. If I mean, it can be pretentious if you're, it can be a way of talking down to to people in in a couple of different ways. So one could be if you say, you know, if you um, air a quote and then then declare who said it and everybody already knows that in in the room, Mm -hmm. um, that that can be both um, pretentious but also kind of embarrassing for the person. Mm -hmm. Um, But but the other way is if if it's used in a... um, if it, it excluding people from the conversation, um, and that's really the the very opposite of what you would hope to happen mm. in in a discussion about you know arts and life and politics is that you want to get to engage as many people as you can. But but I wonder if there's something more than that. So I hmm, I, I can't prove this. I've just sort of had this sense as I've gone throughout my life, and I don't know that any of us would seriously dispute it, that there are large swathes of the population um, who, if you were engaged with, a, engaged with them in a political conversation of some sort and you started quoting people, they would think you were ridiculous. Mm. Yep. Not because they think you're misquoting or anything like that, but it's almost like it, it reveals a whole approach to understanding the world that they regard as overblown, invalid, somehow inauthentic and, and of limited use to them. And I, I don't know that we've interrogated that sort of dimension enough, that someone who thinks in quotes, someone whose view of the world is formed by synthesising quotes, even if they're doing it very well, that there's something about that that's a bit suspect, ab initio, before we get to questions of content or how well they're doing it or any of that sort of thing. If this is not something that people like us who have sort of highfalutin conversations that are of very limited meaning to most people um, really think about very much or would care to admit, but I think it's something to be taken seriously, isn't it? Well, absolutely, because um, if you, as you're saying, if, if you do drop a quote in the sort of unsuitable circumstances, um, yeah, it can completely backfire on the audience. So I would think, you know, quoting Flaubert in a pub <laughs> wouldn't Depends be the, on the pub. There are yeah, a lot yeah, of different... and on the and the, on the night maybe. Um, yeah. But in you know that it's just not a rhetorical strategy that you would adopt to persuade people you know, and, and encourage them to open up if, if you're in um, circumstances where that kind of airing of knowledge is, um, is either suspect or tedious. Yeah, but, but, but why is, on, is what I'm trying to get at? Why, why is that a signifier to a 
probably a lot of people, that this is not someone to be trusted. This is not someone you should listen to. Well, I guess it, it's the idea that they're parroting other, other ideas rather than putting forth their own um, authentic voice, whatever that might be, because we all know mm. that, you know, voices are really a pastiche of, of a polyphony, even of voices, you know, throughout the ages. But um, that idea of, and I think there's, there's um, linguists talk about the quote that is a way of stepping back from an idea. It puts a little bit of a space between the self and the idea. And um, this is the shield idea that we, the were, shield, yeah. we were talking about before. Mm. But it downplays experience, I think. That might be a thing. Mm. So mm. I, I gather an audience like that would much rather hear you say, look, in my experience, whatever, or I wasn't born yesterday and this is what I've concluded. Mm. In, in other words, it's a competing epistemology of sorts, isn't it? It's, it's sort of saying that what you are basing your worldview on is somehow less real, less, I don't want to say authentic, but maybe I have to, and for that reason, less to be trusted, that you're trying to, I don't know, extract mm. some understanding of the world, you know, in a way that I think is unreliable. Well, well, I, I would agree, I think, but it comes back to the circumstances, doesn't it? Because I can think of those moments, and again, not to take us back into, you know, the lecture hall or the classroom, but um, there may be quotations that have become so digestible to myself, but I, you know, delivering a lecture that I've done for, for many years and I'll just off the cuff say something and I just watch the faces light up. They've never heard it before. They've mm. never had that thought or at least if they've had the thought, they haven't heard it expressed in that way and they all get out their pens and start writing down and it's quite sometimes yeah. it's very endearing but it can be quite um, amusing as well to see people copy down such well-known what what it might be to those of us who are older well-known mm. quotations but I think we need to make some careful distinctions here mm. though because there is a difference of course between someone who thinks in terms of a series of quotes mm. and their voice is this thin gossamer thread that kind of runs between, that is almost just the medium between the string of quotations. Mm. Maybe these are quotes that they've simply picked up from Twitter. Maybe these mm. are quotes that they've picked up from a book of quotes. Maybe they're just truisms. Maybe mm. it's just can't, okay? Mm. So so there's someone who thinks in terms of quotes, in which case I think you're right, Willie, that there can be the sense that this person is not authentic. They're living vicariously. There's a kind of preciousness about or a thinness about the way that they view the world that really can't be taken seriously. That's what I think of at the end of that episode of Succession that I mentioned before when Logan Roy, this boorish patriarch of, uh, of a conservative media empire, his response to the Pierce family is, would you like me to quote my favorite line from Shakespeare? Take the effing money. So, so it's, this, it's, this, it's this violent confrontation with the thin superficial, precious world of Shakespeare versus the sheer reality of mergers, takeovers, and so on. But surely... But, but, that, but Logan's, Logan's comment there isn't that I don't think you understand Shakespeare very well. No, it's Logan's not. Logan's comment is, why the hell are you quoting Yes, Shakespeare? yes, precisely. That's exactly the point. But, but there is a difference, surely, between someone who lives by means of a superficial grasp of quotations and therefore has never really become autonomous, never really become authentic in that sense, and someone whose experience of the world is bound up with a life of deep reading. So to, to my mind, there is a gulf between someone who 
superficially fires off a quote that they happen to come across versus someone who has richly worked with, who has lived with, who has read and reread, for instance, Tolstoy or Toni Morrison or Iris Murdoch. Yes, I understand the point you're making, but I'm asking a different question. I'm asking whether or not there are a group of people, significant group of people, um, to be taken seriously, who don't even care if you've done it deeply. Yeah, but, but here's, here's, my, here's my counterpoint. We have all seen a kind of, uh, I apologize for the use of this word, but a kind of reification, a kind of commodification, a normalization of certain forms of language among the professional political class, certain words, certain turns of phrase that keep getting used and circulated and circulated and circulated until they become something like verbal muscle memory. We've all seen that. I don't think there's a great deal of realism behind that. I think there's a degree of, of, of self-seeking, self-satisfied conformity where the tribe speaks this way and therefore I'm going to speak this way. That, to my mind, isn't really authenticity or a greater grasp of the world. Those are also forms, I think, of unattributed quotation and also for the mm. purpose of certain forms of ingratiation. It, it, it seems to me that a person who really does read well and who really engages with the world fully, there is a winsomeness about the way that they might bring about some engagement with something that they've read in real conversation with real people at the pub or around the dinner table or in company that, that can in fact be appropriate, that has the ring of truth to it and not just affectation. Last word to you, Bronwyn. Well, um, no, I, 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 think, I think it's um, entirely possible to do that. But I was thinking of, of other ways, too, that the um, quotations can go wrong. And, and some of the, you were, when you were talking about politicians, I came to mind with um, the recent one with um, Biden, where there was a quote going around all over Facebook of him saying, people are dying that have never died before. Um, and, and using that yep. as a source of, of ridicule. And then who knows where it originated from, but apparently he didn't say it. Um, but it's thought that um, Hemingway, it was a, a line that he would say constantly um, and annoyed his wife um, <laughs> uh, incessantly. So I think there's that. And Biden himself, though, did get um, in trouble in the, the 80s, I think, for plagiarism. plagiarism. Right. So, I mean, it is this idea of... Um, quoting, it can go wrong in that sense that we're talking about alienating audiences, the, the wrong circumstances. But there, there are penalties, those sort of crimes of quotations that, that happen, whether it's um, just the, the ethical dilemma that you were talking about before. Um, and those are sort of culturally bound and, and specific to groups. So, for instance, one of the, the groups um, might be rap rap lyricists and they have something they call metas which are little quotes from um, the rap canon and it's assumed that if you're a serious um, listener to their music that you will know <laughs> what these yeah. quotes are and you'll not only not only recognize it you'll applaud it mm. Um, mm. and there's this really sort of unspoken length <laughs> that it has to be enough to be recognizable and 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 that's that's it. Um, and that, that idea of, um, you know, how much you can quote, 
I think, then becomes a part of the, the marketplace as well. Mm-hmm. Um, almost, s- almost kind of cult of knowingness. This is what's grown up around the musical Hamilton. Yeah, mm. yeah. And mm. um, with whether it's quoting from songs, uh, novels, poetry, you can um, even the idea of academic fair use that we used to use um, is starting to die away. That's true. And it's very, very dangerous to quote from a song like I would never do that these days, either in um, as an epigraph to a book or a line in a novel. People rewrite those lines. Um, if you were trying to get a Beatles song into a book, you'd sort of make one up rather than <laughs> try, try and use it. So I think, um, I mean, it's a really, it's a really um, problematised topic and I think it also connects up with what the idea of the author is and how we conceive mm. it. So you know, many, uh, looking back at the ancient Greeks, they were much more into the skill of language rather than the originality. So um, it was any decent writer, thinker, uh, philosopher would would memorise all the, the great works. And that was part of, you know, if they could memorise it and then they would, by the nature of that act, um, be able to bring them into new to new works mm. um, and and it wasn't mm. considered bad to do that but I think as technology moves on you've got the printing press and you know and obviously now we have the internet um, the idea of um, skill and memory sort of s- seems to fade away and I think that would be another another good abstract topic would mm. be wow. <laughs> memorization because yeah. um, when you memorize you take it it's like you incorporate it into yourself so yeah. that when you're quoting it's a different it's almost like the the easier technology has made it to quote, the worse quoting yes. becomes, and right. sort of the more promiscuous. It's wow. such a complex world. Nice it feels like, point, Willie. It's like Very yesterday, nice. all my troubles seemed so far away. But I can't. <laughs> um, Bronwyn, thank you so much for your time uh, Thanks, today. It's been, it's been really good fun. That's Bronwyn Lee, professor and head of the School of Communication and Arts at the University of Queensland. That's it for us on the Minefield this week. Uh, with any luck, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.